0: Hello, hello, hello. It is Stu. It is the What the Fuck Gym Talk Podcast. And this is something I have not done in a in a while. I have not open my book of business, meaning the gym owners and business owners I work with on a monthly recurring level in a hot minute because of COVID, because of my license model and urban movement stuff, just really, really busy with that. But I have opened the book back up. For those of you guys who don't know, I only work with 40 micro gym owners and fitness business owners per month. That's it. It's the max that I do. I work with people. I literally month to month level, no contract. You get access to me for either 30 minutes once a month or one hour once a month. You get full access to Micro Gym University. You get a bat phone to me where you can text call video message whatever it is audio message and we can be in contact in between our calls and that's how i go ahead and create custom tailored solutions to your business problems so if you're looking to work with somebody where you're not stuck in some douchey 12 month eft contract or you have to give your banking information you gotta spend six thousand dollars up front you literally want to get on a call talk with me in real life just me where I just listen to you, talk to you, we f- talk about your problems, I come up with a solution, an executable plan, and then we tackle it together. And then in between that, you want Micro Gym University and be able to access me when you have sh- you know, a fire go off in your business on a random Tuesday or some shit pops off late at night and you want my opinion on it, then shoot me a DM, let me know, because this is the first time I'm opening up to go back to 40 per month and it's going to fill up quick, guys. Bef- we're going to get into the podcast here in a second, but just thank you for listening to the pre-roll. And I really do hope like my goal is to work with as many of you guys in some capacity, if it's for one month, two months, fucking three years, I don't give a shit. But if you got some problems and you want someone to bounce ideas off of and help you create an executable plan of action, I hope that I'm your fucking guy. All right. on to the podcast. Alrighty, guys. It is Stu, and it is another episode of the What the Fuck Gym Talk podcast, and I have Paul Jarvis on in his last. I, I you won't you won't even do a like uh, a reunion tour and do another podcast interview at some point. Are you really well, thinking this is your last one? Yeah, I, at least for a
1: year. I've given myself a year to take a break from any kind of interviews or anything public, and then in a year I'll check back with myself, I guess. But for now, yeah, this is it. This, this, this is it. it. Well, yeah.
0: I, I'm, I'm absolutely honored. Thank you so much. I had been told to read your book, Company of One, about nine times. And I, it was maybe the 10th time that I actually like, all right, let me get it. Let me read it. And in my line of work in the fitness industry, I've kind of evolved. I've got this brick and mortar thing and and it's a self-running company. I'm not involved in that much at all. And then I have this, my online, this content handle of WTF gym talk, the podcast, the videos, and I do consulting work with gym owners. And, when I, it was the most, it was the thing that it gave me like this permission. Like I didn't have to continue to scale this thing. And I'm sure you hear that from so many people, but for those of my audience that might not be completely familiar, if you just with brevity, hit them, hit them with the real quick uh, Paul Jarvis one-on-one as to who you are and what you do.
1: Yeah. So I started out as a designer in the nineties on the internet. I worked with uh, top pro athletes for many, many years. Um, And then I transitioned into working with online entrepreneurs when that became a thing. And then I transitioned from doing web work to my own products. So books, podcasts, courses, software. Um, And yeah, that's where I'm at today. The last book that I wrote, like you said, was Company of One. And now I run a software company called Fathom.
0: So with, and I, let's just I get, get right to the, one of the meatier things. I So I signed up for your, your weekly newsletter, right? This nice little love letter you would send out. And um, I look forward to those on Sundays. And then your last one was, you know, again, you're kind of, you're bowing out. You're like, guys, I think I've said everything there is to say. I mean, how long was that? That was years you had that newsletter going.
1: Eight years. Eight I read years. An article, about a thousand words, sometimes. 5000 cuz i don't know how to write short things. Um, yeah, every single Sunday
0: for 8 years. Was that is when you started that cuz you know, I, I recommend the gyms. I'm like you, you know, having a weekly newsletter. Everyone's like eh, open rates are and I'm like if you do it right and you write a good love letter once a week and it's actually relative and it and it's authentic, it's still a great way to keep your brand in front of and keep your messaging and your conversation with your audience going. Did you do it in the beginning eight years ago from more of a marketing standpoint? And then did it kind of evolve over time? Where it's like your own diary of like, you know, I I got a lot of crap in my head. I just need to drop it all here. And it kind of feels good. And I send it on and ship it to you guys. And you guys do whatever you want with it. Like, how did that evolve? And why did you shut it down?
1: Yeah, it was initially because I, I needed a way to schedule because I was always booked. Whenever now was, I was fully booked for um, client service work. So I just needed a way to tell people like, hey, I'm... You can't hire me right now, but you can hire me in two months. I have two spots in April, or I have three spots in August, or I've got one spot in six months. So, it, And it, I felt like those emails were just fucking boring. Like, hey, I've got two So I'm like, I'm just going to write something to throw in there because it'll make it more interesting. I have a point of view. I like sharing my point of view. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to write some stuff. I'm going to share my point of view. I'm going to share... Not and what, what I realized at the time was that most people who were doing what I was doing web design were writing for other web designers and I was like, okay, that's cool. But web design, other web designers don't pay me um, money to hire me. Right. People who want websites pay me money. So I'm going to write stuff for the people who are giving me money instead of the people who are in the same industry as me, because those people I'm sure are cool. But if they're not giving me money, I didn't care.
0: Yeah,
1: So it initially started with me, okay, I'm going to write articles for the type of people who I would want to hire me. So smart people who want to have a website or they're, they have an online business that they just want to make better. And that's really what it started out as. And I was just sharing um, how I thought about what I thought they could do to make their business better. Whether or not they hired me was besides the point. It was a good selling tool, let's be honest. But besides, but like, it didn't matter if they hired me. It was just a matter of like, okay, here's some stuff you should know. And then it kind of grew from that as I moved away from web design into, okay, well, I guess I know some stuff about online business. I guess I know some stuff about marketing. I'm just going to start sharing the stuff that I know. I'm just going to start putting it out there. And that was the, the weekly newsletter was the thing that people seemed to resonate the most with for the stuff that I was doing. So I was like, this is where I'm going to share it. And I just started doing that. And yeah, initially it was like 60 people. Um, who were just on my waiting list. And then it kind of grew to a couple thousand, then a couple more thousand, then I think 35,000. And yeah, it just became the, the hub basically of if somebody wanted to pay attention to the stuff that I was doing, um, the newsletter was where it was at. If I was writing a new book or had some new software or had a new course, whatever the fuck I was doing, that's where you could get that information as well as the the articles that I was writing. So yeah, I didn't plan it to turn out that way, but that's what happened.
0: And why, why shut it down?
1: Oh, yeah, the, the other part of the question. <laughs> I'm going to answer if you ask me two questions, I'm going to answer the easy one. Got and then, yeah. so I, think I shut it down for, I guess, several reasons. I think the main one was I felt like uh, in the beginning, I felt very often that, oh, I this is something that I think my list should know or this is the topic that I would love to explore. This is something that I think I know that could help other people. Um, and this year, I wasn't really getting that feeling anymore of, well, there's something that needs to be on the list that sh- that I haven't written about. I wasn't getting that. So I was like, okay, maybe I've run out. I think I've, I wrote about 400,000 words for my list. So that's a couple books on top of, I think, five books that I've written. So like, there's a, there's a lot of writing out there. And I don't learn things as fast. I don't learn things enough to share them once a week. I wish I did, but that's just not how it goes. Um, the other aspect of it was that I never set out to be uh, a known person in my niche. Like I'm not famous by any means, but in the, the, the niche that I exist in, people know who I am because I have a personal brand because people pay attention to it. And I just felt that it was difficult. Um, there was like a, a mental bandwidth required to deal with people having opinions about my opinions, which, i'm happy if people have opinions i'm happy people have different opinions than mine but the weight of sending something out and getting two three four hundred replies every sunday was a lot and a lot of times people just wanted to share what they thought about something which is fine like if it was just me chatting with you or chatting with a friend we're gonna go back and forth on opinions and that's great if it's me talking to thousands of people and getting hundreds of people replying I don't have the bandwidth as a a human being who also needs to make money and work. It just, I did, there wasn't a good way to do that. So I felt, okay, I, I can just shut it off. And the other thing is my, the business that I'm doing right now, Fathom, it exists outside of my personal brand very intentionally and it's going well and it's now requiring a lot of time. So I'm like, if the, if this can be my out, if this can be a way for me to to not be um, a, a known person with a brand on the internet anymore, then shit, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a shot and and see if it works.
0: Is that is that very much a 2020 kind of? I feel that's for a lot of people right now. Everyone's kind of giving some, especially whether it was a previous idea or business that went well or didn't go well. I feel like 20 so many people are having to um, pivot. A, to different areas in different ways that I, I'm seeing a lot of people try things like, I, I, I normally would have kept doing this thing, but I fuck it. It's 2020. I'm going to give this other thing a try. It's all, you know, there, there's no more template for what I thought my business was going to look like now. Did, did you anticipate fathom and for real quick? What, what, and, and what's the one liners the what fathom is?
1: Website analytics, but with privacy.
0: Okay. So did you ever anticipate that getting bigger or was it more like, again, I, I want to talk about this because this thing's out growing. How are you growing it with a company of one mindset?
1: Yeah. So we started, um, I guess in 2018 and it had been growing steadily. Um, since then basically like it, it's been growing really well and then March hit and we were like, Oh fuck, like, is this going ru- <laughs> to like, is this going to ruin everything? Cause I think everybody's in the same boat. Like, Uh, global pandemic, can we still work and make money? Yeah. I was just like, I don't even know what could happen here. And then our growth increased because more and more people figured, well, okay, if I'm going to work, I need to do it online. I need to do it remotely. Um, I need things that run my website. So growth exploded from there, which was unintentional, but we'll take it because it was... It's revenue. So, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of what happened with that. And I enjoy running it. And I think the other thing that's important is that it's something, like I've started, I guess, about seven software companies at this point. Um, I've sold, I think, four. And the other ones I just shut down because they weren't making any money. This is the only one that I've started that I actually like doing. Um, and a lot of it comes down to, like you said, like how can I apply this company of one mentality in this question and growth mentality to basically, okay, how do I want to spend my day? Like if the business is doing well, that's amazing. But what do I want my time to be taken up with for this business? right? And so thinking about that as much as possible, and I'm glad I have a business partner who's kind of on, he read my book. I didn't make him read my book. He had just read my book before uh, we became business partners, but he shared kind of the same philosophy. And I think that was really important too. If he had wanted to take on funding and hyper grow and all of this, and it he wouldn't have been a good business partner. I, w- I wouldn't have been a good business partner for him, right? So I think finding, if you, if you are working with somebody else, finding a person that has kind of the same vision for what will happen if things go well. Because if things go shitty, you, don't, you, have, you have less options. But when things go well, you have more options and you have more places that you can make decisions. So if you're not on the same page when things are going well, then things can stop going well, even if the business is going well.
0: So your company of one mentality, as I was talking about earlier, really changed my lens on the growth of of my business and how I wanted to think of it. And I started thinking, you know, I've got these two buckets. I've got this, this consulting media handle bucket with WTF. I've got this, my gym's called urban movement. It's in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I started thinking, what is like, what's the ideal day? What, like, what is my, what does a work week or work month look like? And, And I started constructing it. And if it didn't, enable me to work that amount and do what I want and travel at this time and do record and talk to cool people in podcast then it didn't go in it even if it would have made revenue go up it didn't help my end state and that really started you know that light bulb switch for me then the pandemic hit and then I'm start I'm seeing all these brick and mortar gyms just go down and I think where I'm really interested in getting your opinion on is a lot of my audience listening right now we were all in growth mindsets that we need more clients. And the average gym is going to have 200, 300, maybe 400 clients, if that. And But with this crazy overhead that a brick and mortar comes with, and now a lot of them are you know, out of business because rent, the most expensive park, was not able to be relieved long enough or significantly enough. And there's individuals who have online fitness communities that they help that they write workouts for 30,000 deep making significantly more money than this brick and mortar could ever impacting more people that this brick and mortar could ever impact. And now I've got people, you know, jumping that, jumping off that ship and going into this online thing. And I, and I tell everyone, you've got to read this book and you have to go into it with this mindset, what advice would you have for someone who's sitting there in their brick and mortar? And they're like, should I just kill this thing? And if I kill it, how can I still like, what, what's my business plan next? As far as that goes,
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously it's tough with the, with the asterisk on 2020 because I don't know what's going to happen either. (laughs) Damn. But I think when you think about it, it's, it's, it's tough, right? Because in the beginning growth is definitely good. When you get your first client at your gym, then you have a hundred percent increased your revenue from zero to one. And then from one to a hundred, you've, it's a good thing in the beginning. And and this is where I think people get caught up because in our minds, growth is good when we start because it's always good because going from nothing to something in terms of revenue, in terms of customers, in terms of whatever is always a good thing. And then we get caught up in that. Okay, well, getting one more person in my gym is a good thing and then okay getting one more person in my gym is a good thing but i think what we need to do and it's difficult like it's it's difficult for me as well i wrote the book but like it's hard because there there comes a point where that more isn't equaling better right like you could nobody wants to work out in a, a ridiculously crowded gym for example like if you have to wait to use um every piece of equipment then that's not a good experience i would assume. Um, So there comes a point where you have to think, okay, well, if growth is no longer making things better, then what can I do to make things better, right? And then maybe it is like you said, maybe it is doing things um, online, maybe it's finding different ways to diversify income. I know for myself, like I've always had a couple irons in the fire, because like, I don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work till I do the things. And then I see, okay, if this thing's working, and this thing's not, I know what to cut. It's the same with investing. Like I don't know how to invest in individual stocks. I don't want to learn either. But if I put money in index funds, that's investing in all the stocks. So it's diversified. So it's like okay, I'm going to get um, less of a return on investment overall. Like I'm not going to get two hundred or three hundred percent returns in any year because it's 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 a index. But I am going to get five or six percent. Um, all the time, even in, even in crop years, it pretty much is always five or 6%, sometimes seven. So I think thinking about, okay, if I only have one revenue, if I only have one revenue stream, what can I do to increase it to two or three, even if those things aren't um, something that you spend 24 seven on. But maybe there's ways that you can kind of start like adding in just a little bit more, adding in just a little bit more. Maybe it is like you said, where you can do some things online. And and what you're saying there as well is a good thing to think about where it's like, okay, if, are, are there any avenues where you can grow without growing? Right? So are there any avenues where you can, and the newsletter is a good example. I could write an email to you, that's an article and send it to you. And that's me doing something just for you, right? It takes me the exact same amount of time to write an article and send it to 35,000 people. So that's what, like a one to many relationship, just like selling um, access to online training or something. It doesn't matter if one person signs up or a hundred people sign up, you've already shot the videos and done the lessons and all of that. So that's a place where you can affect growth without having to grow. Like, you know, if, if I sell like a digital course and I sell a hundred instead of 20 a week, I don't have to hire somebody. I don't have to grow in any way whatsoever. It's just, okay, my income grew, right? So thinking about ways that you can work on one to many relationships and you can work on one to many revenue streams, I think is really important, especially when shit hits the fan like this year.
0: What Do you see are some of the better tactics for small business owners that are looking to, to scale? Like, again, you know, there's two ways to make more money, guys, in, the, in the, the gym scene, right? You have more clients, or you have the same amount of clients that pay more money. So, you know, I'll get hired to do um, a consulting work on a price raise, how to execute a price raise, what price, how to break the news so people don't cancel, all that. But that's generally the two ways we go. We need to have more people, or we need to have more money per person, or you need to lower overhead, the thing that sucks the money out of the business. When you think of it from that perspective, what what are some of the better strategies? Obviously, you know we talked about diversifying, having some couple different multiple street, revenue streams for the individual. But for as a small business owner, what are some of the tactics that you've you maybe seen deployed that you really like, or that you would generally recommend to somebody when they're kind of looking at that that trifecta of opportunities here: lower lower overhead, more customers, or more money per, and keep the current customers
1: yeah i mean from every study and it probably holds true in 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 the gym arena is that it costs five times more to get a new person than to just make money off of an existing person right so i think figuring out ways to the people who are already paying you trust you enough to open up their wallets and give you money so what else can you offer those people that will either keep them there longer give you more money offer more services Um, And that kind of thing, because then you've saved 5% of your time to go out and try to find new people on the other side of that. And and one of the three points that you touched on as well was the overhead thing. I think it's important, especially when starting out is to think about minimum viable profit. So what's the smallest amount you can spend to be profitable? Like if your rent is, and I'll just use random numbers here that are simple because fuck math. If your rent is $2,000, um, and you charge $100 a person, then you need 20 people to break even. So the first 20 people, you're just covering your rent. You're not making, a, you're not making any money. But then after 20, you're starting to make money. But if you had a place that was um, $200, right? You, I, and obviously, you can't just find a place that's cheaper. But there are you can go a bit further out of town or whatever. But like the, what are the things you can do, especially in the beginning, where you can spend the least amount of money to start getting money coming in the door? Right, And you can always grow later. You can always open up a second location or get a bigger location or whatever. But like in the beginning, what can you do to have overhead um, as low as possible, right? And maybe it's like less fancy things or you're focused on like one aspect of working out. So you need one type of equipment. And I mean, just in, in thinking about that, it, it also kind of comes and challenges the growth mindset where it's like, you don't need to start out with the biggest thing with all of the the newest stuff. You don't need all of the things, especially right in the beginning, because it's going to take so much money to catch up to your spending, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you start small and grow as you need to, then you're letting your profit, you're letting your margins kind of stay where they are. So as you grow, you're spending a bit more, as you grow, you're spending a bit more. Whereas in the beginning, if it's like, I'm just going to spend a fuck ton and then hope that it catches up, you're, you're not in the black for a while. And that's that's risky. Like that's scary. And that's risky to do.
0: Yeah. It's, I see, I always thought of it as like, you've got this rag and I, I see a lot of owners, they ring the rag out to what they think is there. And they're like, Oh, well what came out is what came out. And there's so much more to actually ring it out. And, it, and it's, again, it comes to one of those three that we just discussed and I'm seeing it now so quickly, you know, a, a gym owner's gym, he, he, he loses it in COVID he still has 20. He maybe had a hundred clients. He still has 20 that are like the diehards. They were like the top 20% of his customers. He could tell them to run into a brick wall and they'd say how fast, right? They just do it. So now he turns him and says, well, I'm closing the gym, but I'll I'll still write you workouts and I'll make videos or I'll get, you know, I'll program your exercises for you. It's going to cost this. And I've got guys that are taking 20 people. And instead of paying, you know, the $150 a month at their gym, they're paying 300 or 350 a month for this really individualized kind of training. And it takes them a fraction of the time to deliver that service with none of the overhead. He's like, Holy shit, I've got this with 20 people. If, I get another 20 people. I mean, like, I'm back up to the, I'm making more money now than I was with my big gym. There was a line in your book, you talked about how, you know, as we add on more things, it kind of becomes like this Megatron, this big monster, right? The bigger you are, the harder you fall. And I've been interviewing some of the largest, most successful micro gyms in the country that are closed now. And my question to them, very much inspired from your book was, was it the opposite of being too big to fail? Were you too big and that's what made you vulnerable? And a lot of them, it was, it's a very interesting, I think a light bulb moment for so many. At what point as a business grows, do you think if, and again, maybe, you know, they did have the company of one mindset, but what are some of the red flags as a company's growing and chasing scale and all this where it's like, I don't know, brother, this thing's getting so big that if we do have a hiccup or an asterisk like 2020, we're going to go down hard.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a, this year specifically is a good lesson because none of us saw this coming. Like t- twenty nine, the last thing I did in twenty nineteen was go to a football game, <laughs> like seventy thousand people, and like thinking about that now is like Jesus, that would be
0: what, was the, be what game? What game did you go to? Who's your team? Uh, the last the
1: last Raiders game at the okay. in Oakland? Cool.
0: Um, yeah,
1: and yeah, they they got uh, yeah they got wrecked by the Jags. That's you know, not not. <laughs> But I think um, thinking about, okay, how can we be resilient when things aren't, because this is the last thing you want to think about, right? Like when things are going well, you want to think about let's never make this gravy train end. But I think it, that is the best time to think, okay, well, what if this stops? Like what if this, what if we have a lean month? What if um, our rent gets doubled or something like that? What if like another pandemic hits and it's important to think about these things even when things are going well because you just you never know right like we we didn't know that this was going to happen so in thinking about that then we can start to think okay well what can be a plan um if something happens that that is bad because the worst time to make a plan is when you're going through it because it's really hard to to make a plan when you're also dealing with the emotions of shit happening So it's easier to make a plan when things are going well, because then you can be a bit more um, mindful and thoughtful uh, about the plan. And just thinking about, okay, well, maybe there's a way to start to build up a a war chest in the business. And this is like a corporate term from like Fortune 500s, but I think it's really important for small businesses too, is to build up um, when you can some cash reserves for if something goes wrong right and i I, this most small business owners that i've talked to have never done that and i think that this year especially has shown us that like we need to be able to be a bit more resilient so if there is a month or two lean or or right now however many months this has been going on like there's ways to deal with it and and there's ways to have a buffer to make a better plan right like you don't want to be making the plan right in the the second that you have to make it but if you have like a two-month runway then if if shit hits the fan then you have two months to make a plan you have two months to maybe film videos and put all your shit online yeah. right so giving yourself that space to be able to make the plans i think is so important
0: it's you want to come up with those oh shit scenarios like you said i also interviewed mike McCallowitz. he wrote a bunch of books one of them is called profit first and he's a yeah. bunch of cash management and um mike had always said you know when shit's going bad, you're, you're not thinking rationally. You're thinking very emotionally. You want to you come up with that fire escape plan when you're completely level-headed and like you would make the soundest, best decisions, not when the tornado is actually about to hit the building because then you're just going to run wherever the nearest exit is and it's, you know, um, take you right into the eye of the storm. What are some of the characteristics that you actually, actual personality characteristics you see in those that execute owning a company of one the best. If, I, if I've got a, a young business owner right now and he's trying to model his, his business after your, your teachings here, what are some of those characteristics? What is it? So he can introspectively look at himself and say, I've got it or I don't, that I need to work on a few things.
1: Yeah. So I think the, the first one is to have a purpose, like a purpose that guides decision making, right? Like to have, a, you could call it a North Star purpose, whatever it is, but have, have a reason for why you're doing it because running a business is fucking hard. So just running a business for the sake of running a business is kind of shitty. Like, there's not, it's not good enough. So if you have a reason for running the business, then that can help be the lens through which you filter all decisions through. And if you can make decisions faster, that's better. That's just better for your business. Um, the second thing is to basically, and I don't know how to foster this, but I think it is really important, is to have the ability to roll with the unknown right? Like to be able to accept the way the reality is currently and adapt if needed, right? Like I've had to, even in my career, I've had to change paths a bunch of times. I've done totally different things. I, I didn't know that I'd be where I am now with the type of work that I do like five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago kind of thing. So having the ability to figure out, okay, what do I need to do that's different? If the thing that I've done over and over again isn't working, then how can I do something different? And how can I start doing that differently right now? And it's hard, right? Like, it's hard to, like, even with, like, wearing masks outside, it was hard to get people to, or being, bringing um, cloth bags to the grocery store, right? Like, it's hard to build up the reps to remember these things, and to do these things, and to make them second nature, but it comes with practice.
0: Yeah, let me ask you, with, um with your companies? What, what have you always thought about as your purpose?
1: Yeah. Um, for the long, it depends on the business. And so for, um, for the, like the books that I write I, as an example is what can I teach people, um, that they may not know, or that they may have been taught as the opposite there that they may have been taught. The opposite is true. Right. Cause I feel like that's where most of my writing kind of lives is in this, um, contrarian, but still kind of rational place. And so for me, it was always, okay, I just, I want to help people and I want to teach people. and I want to show people that if all you see in the world is businesses who are succeeding because of these markers, like the excessive growth, the taking money, all of that, then maybe I can shine a light on the other end where businesses are killing it and they're not growing insanely. They're growing slowly and and thoughtfully and methodically. Um, And then for the business that I run now, Fathom, it's, I just want to make the internet a, a better place through privacy. And so all decisions that we make for the software is like, okay, this feature could make us another million dollars a month, but if it's not private, we're not going to do it because our North star, our, our guiding purpose for the business is privacy is always going to be better for everybody.
0: With When you think of growing a company of one from a marketing perspective, you know, and the one thing that was really, I'm really diligent when I talk about your book and and the way you look at things is, again, a company of one is not physically a singular person. It's a company that resists growth when there's a smarter, better way to, to do it. And I, you know, marketing becomes that thing where I'll have a lot of gym owners say, well, okay, well, I want to lean on my business. Maybe it's online. Maybe it's brick and mortar. I, I want to kind of attack my business with this company of mine mindset, but I do have to market. And when I market and I do it well, more money shows up, but then the more people show up and then I need more trainers for those people. And we need bigger software to handle all of that and the logistics and more equipment. So how would you recommend, you know, marketing with the idea that the goal of this isn't necessarily to acquire all the monies from all the people who see my marketing. But to either help, like, wh- how do you, how would you recommend someone thinks about marketing when they're trying to still maintain the mindset of a company of one?
1: Yeah, so I, I, I think there's a few things there. I think I, I can definitely speak to enough. But the other thing, and this kind of comes back to what we were talking about, is when I was doing one-on-one services, where so if I was a trainer, I was training individuals. Then have if you're getting, if you start to notice yourself, yourself getting popular or getting booked to capacity, then maybe instead of looking to hire more people, you can you can think, okay, well, what can I do that hits that one-to-many? Like if you master one-to-one in business, then you can move on to one-to-many. And one-to-many could be maybe I'm creating videos that people can just sign up and buy for like five bucks a month or something like that, or maybe they can access... Um, Maybe I have five tracks for workout plans for different physiques that they can buy one of those five things. So what can you do to maximize things without having to necessarily grow is is the first thing. And the second thing, uh, as far as marketing specifically goes, is to think about, okay, well, what is is enough? Like maybe I need to reach X number of people. and, And once I've reached that number of people then I don't take my foot off the gas and just kind of coast, right? It's more that, okay, well, if I reach uh, enough as far as capacity goes, and one that builds exclusivity, because it's like, I only have this many spots and they're all taken right now, but it's not a for a wait list kind of thing. Um, and, and the other side of that is that maybe that, maybe that's just good. Maybe you don't need to grow past that, right? Like maybe you do, but maybe you just, maybe that's the sweet spot of like, You're working maybe four or five hours a day. You've got time to go do other shit and you're good. Like anybody else that wants to work with you, then maybe they can buy one of those one-to-many things that you offer or or maybe not, or maybe they come back to it another time. But it doesn't have to be all or nothing or always everything. And, And if you do reach that enough, then... Like I said, it's not a matter of like taking your foot off the gas. It's a matter of okay, what where can I focus next that will best optimize my business? Like maybe it's retention. Maybe it's working hard with the existing people that you're working with so that they never want to leave. Maybe it's it maybe it's something else. Maybe it's always having good customer service. Maybe it's something but there's always something to focus on. Like when you're running a business and it's doing well, you're not going to be just twiddling your thumbs like okay, I'm good now. So there's always gonna be something to work on, but maybe it isn't just always focusing on growth. Maybe it's focusing on other aspects like retention. And typically it is retention.
0: It's, it's interesting. I think about it, like, especially in my line of work and what I do, you know, um, we do 12 podcasts a month, we're doing the vlogs, we're doing all this stuff. And it's like, how do I re? How can I take that marketing, all this free stuff that I put out into the ether to, you know, increase someone's potential awareness of me, and then repackage it into something that my current clients can also benefit from. Can I get two in one? Right. It, I, in the fitness industry, I, I typically see it a lot of times with um, it's as simple as raising your prices. You get, you know, you start marketing if you are getting popular, which is what marketing is supposed to do for your business, is make you popular. There's a certain point where you need to become a just maybe slightly more expensive and increase those rates. You know, can you make just as much, if not more money? By working with less people and then, you know, your free content that you put out. They're like, you know, your newsletter that was going out every week, that is a form of marketing. Even though it might not have had there's no direct call to action tied to it. You could take all, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of those words and have that repurposed into an ebook or another, you know, you you know, and that's marketing twice over. Now you got to use it once and everyone consumed it drip by drip by drip by drip. And then you could repurpose that damn thing and have this big fatty book that no one even really remembers because they don't remember the email from year seven or year two. And it's all just repurposed.
1: Yeah. One of my books was that one of my books was, I think 60% content from my newsletter. And when I, just before I started selling it, I was like, Oh shit, nobody's going to buy this or people are going to buy it and be pissed off that it's repurposed content. Zero people care. like zero people. Emailed me and said, I want a refund because you wrote this like four years ago in an email that I forgot about. Yeah. So you're right. Like it it, it takes time to make content. So if you can use that content more than once, like even the podcast that I have for my business, I turn every podcast episode into an article. I turn it, my business partner turns it into a tweet thread. Like if you already have the content made, then. What can you do to use it again? Like we could post it on YouTube if we wanted to, kind of thing. So yeah, the the more that you can reuse content and even re- come back to it, like people's oh, memories, people's memories and attention spans are so short. It's probably even if it's the best thing you wrote, it, you remember it, but they like in three months, nobody's gonna remember
0: that. Hundred percent. My guy who does our social media, we for WTF organically we'll post six to nine times a day and we rerun videos all the time because there's, I mean, there's people that are listening to us now that still just have episodes of the office that play from Netflix just in their house randomly and they'll watch the same episode over and over again, you know, or if we all said, you know, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on current, we all know that because you repetitively heard it. Like I believe in marketing repetition is one of the key elements. You don't have to create a brand new baby piece of content every single single day um what are some businesses that you're looking at now that you really draw inspiration from for your own business with fathom and whatnot that that are really great examples of of a company one obviously you listed several of them in the book but have there been any new ones that have come across your radar I'd be like man i like the way they've made that they they've decided to grow they've grown very lean and smart is there anyone that you've been looking at recently
1: um I haven't been looking at anybody recently.
0: <laughs> What's some of your best examples? So, someone's like, "Hey, who I I want to start looking at some other businesses that are doing a, a pretty good job of this? Who should I be looking at?"
1: Yeah, I mean, Basecamp is probably the best example from my world, the software world. Um, Peel—they make iPhone cases. Uh, a good example in the physical product world, where they, the founder Marshall, uh, buddy of mine, he figured that in order to get to ten million a year, he would have to have a lot of employees. And as he grew, he just started finding ways to partner with other companies to get manufacturing locked in to a point where he doesn't have to look at it. Um, to get customer service locked in to the point where he doesn't have to look at it. Where I think they have like eight people maybe, and they're making multimillion dollars a year because they've been very intentional, even their, um, and this is a story from the book, I think, even their CFO was just their accountant. And until he started to cost them more on contract than he would on salary, they just kept him uh, on contract because if they would, didn't need him one month, then that wouldn't be an expense. So I think, yeah, the companies like that, I think, have been um, have been really, really good uh, uh, to see that there's other people I didn't I didn't invent this whole philosophy. I'm just the guy who kind of wrote about it. So I'm just the guy who paid attention to a bunch of people doing this, the same th- <coughs> who, uh, yeah, who were doing the same thing in different industries and just kind of started to write about it.
0: One of the biggest things with being a company one is you have to find your niche. Right. If you're trying to be something to everybody, this is you will not be able to, it's the scaling of that is going to be too big, too expensive. And you, and you're probably going to miss the mark. Um, how, how do you know, yeah, how would I word this? Um, what are some of the early identifiers that you would might, someone, someone might see when they're successfully finding that niche, when they're landing on the right product to market fit, what are some things maybe you would, you would that you've seen or that when you were writing the book, you thought about like, okay, I think I found the right niche because you know, the chick who sells how-to courses on selling blue beanie babies on eBay, like that's a niche of a niche of a niche and that chick probably, she's one of the only people doing it. She's making a lot of money, but how do you know when you've maybe niched wrong or does it always just have to be purpose like what you're interested in and only what you're interested in?
1: Um, no, it, there needs to be, there's, there's two circles in the Venn diagram and that the part that, oh, where the overlap is, is the, um, the place where you make money. <laughs> so the interest, the interest circle, obviously important and the expertise kind of fits in there too, right? You need to know what you're doing in order to sell it. But, um, the, as far as the, the product market fit, the easiest thing, the, the, the quick, like two second, does this niche have a conference? Doesn't matter if it's one. Doesn't matter if it's fifty. Doesn't matter where in the world it is. If there's a conference on this, and I guarantee you, I don't know this as a fact, but I guarantee you, there's a Beanie Baby conference. That not, obviously not this year, but in sure, yeah, five, yeah, there's a fucking Beanie Baby co- yep. conference somewhere, and it's huge. It's probably in the big San Diego one, <laughs> um, conference center. So that's a, that's the easiest thing to look at. It's like, okay, does does this market have um
0: have a have big a- enough audience that's interested in this? And if if it is, then that niche is. Uh, worth exploring
1: and conferences also help identify is this a niche that has money right Cause rent, well, running a conference isn't cheap running a conference has a bunch of sponsors that pay a lot of fucking money um conferences you have to pay to get into because there's speakers that have speaker fees so th- the the good thing about that is that you can see kid hey, does this ha- does this niche have money because it could be a, it, it could be a niche that absolutely exists that has no fucking money Like I I, somebody that I used to know wanted to do websites for independent musicians or like local bands. It's a good idea. There's local, every city has local bands, right? Local bands don't have money. Local bands have money for beer and they have money for gear. And that's the only, I know this because I was in a band for a very long time, but like, there's no money in that. Whereas um, if you look at some of the niches that I've focused on in my career, pro athletes definitely have money, right? Or, online entrepreneurs. They have money for the type of work that I was doing, which was web design because their entire business model requires them to have a website. So they know that there's value there, right? So as far as thinking about niches, I think those are probably the most important things is does this audience have money? I guess the third thing would be, um, how can you connect with this audience? Cause you have to, right? Like if you say, oh, I wanna like, I, I wanna do work as for realtors. And you don't know any realtors. You don't know how to connect with any realtors. You ever been to a real estate conference? I'm sure there's real estate conferences too. I think there's conferences for everything.
0: Everything, yeah. But like,
1: if you don't have a way to connect and then differentiate yourself in that niche, then it's going to get hard. Like, it's going to be very difficult, right? So having a way to connect with these people or a plan to connect with people in that niche is important because they're not just going to find, you can't just put a website out and they like magically somehow find you. Like you've gotta be, you've gotta to go to them initially. You've gotta to go to where they are spending time initially and then bring them to your stuff that you're doing. Like blogging, blogging, podcasts, all of that. So there has to be a way for you to connect with those people and, and bring them to what you're doing.
0: Have you ever explored uh, creating like a financial model or a matrix for what a company of one would look like? So I'll go back to, to Mike McCallowitz on there, you know, his recommendation was if you're a brick and mortar store, you should only be spending about 25% of your earned revenue on your rent. No more than 25%. More than 25%, brother, it's going to eat you alive. I don't care how nice the building is or where it's located. Don't be spending more than 25 You know, have you ever messed around with that? Like, guys, if you want to stay lean as a company one, these are the recommended financial numbers.
1: No, because it's it, it, when you're talking about virtual, it's hard. But I, I will say that in terms of, Margin, is good where you can like when you remove yourself from brick and mortar, it's hard to have high margins in that. I think in software and online, you need to focus on having as high margin as possible because it costs money. Like if I look at the software that I sell starts at 14 bucks a month and people are like, well, $14 a month is expensive. We compete our biggest competitors, Google Analytics, and they're free. Right? So like right out of the gate, we cost $14 more than the biggest competitor that has like 99% of the market share. And if we look at, okay, well, it costs us this amount of money to build our software or it costs us for hosting fees, it costs us this much money, then it would be like, holy shit. If we just looked at hosting costs, it'd be like, holy shit, we have a goal mine of because our margins would be ridiculous. But when you also factor in things like we just got... Um, DDoS attacked. So some lonely nerd in a basement decided that they wanted to try to take down our business. That ended up costing us uh, probably about 50 grand. Oh, wow, and wow. so if we didn't have margins, we'd be fucked. Or we spend money on support. We spend money on sending um, our customers things for retention. We spend money on our podcasts. Like, We spend money on the lawyers that we had to hire in Europe because we deal with European copyright law. And I don't suggest anybody deal with European copyright law. It's not very fun. Um, We have a privacy officer that we have to pay on contract. We have um, all of our accounting and all of our corporate legal fees in Canada. So when you look at it as far as just like, okay, this is how much it costs to run this one aspect of the business versus this is how much we make. It's like, fuck, those margins are crazy. But when you factor in all of the other things that you actually require to run a business, it's like okay, we make enough to pay myself and uh, the co-founder a decent salary and we have a bit of money to put in the war chest um, in case things go bad. But like, it's it still has margins, but you need to, fa- I think that's the important thing. I There's no way that I could come up with an equation, but you need to be real about all of the things that is going to cost money in your business and all of the things that could cost you money because you need to plan for them as much as you can. I mean, we didn't realize... That somebody who's going to try to attack our business and take our, take all of our customers' websites down. But it happened and we had to, yeah, we had to, to deal with that.
0: That's that's, uh, that's crazy. Did you guys, I mean, how, what? Ha- I'm just now just curious on that. So someone tries to hack you guys and take down, what is it? What is like, you don't call the cops. what? What happens? Like what's that even process?
1: Yeah. So they can't hack us because we have good security. And this is kind of what happens now is it's
0: really hard unless
1: you're, Unless you're a big company and somebody saves everybody's password as like a plain text file on the internet. It's really hard to hack a tech company because like we know tech. But what you can do is just throw a fuck ton of traffic at them, right? So like we handle stats for a lot of companies and we process millions of page views a day for people who have our software on their server. So this person decided, well, okay, what happens if we send um, a couple hundred thousand page views in a second at their servers? What happens if we send double that? What happens if we send that over? The
0: servers crash and it just mayhem.
1: Well, no, because we have, we pay for something called serverless. So our servers grow and shrink as they're needed, like on-demand availability. The problem with that is as the server grows, our the amount of money we have to pay to amazon also grows so it's like okay this was like a couple grand last month and it is a lot more grand this month but i mean it ended up making us a bet it ended up making our what we offer people better because now we're better insulated for that we got we didn't think we thought we were running pretty efficient before and now we're like fuck that we could be way more efficient in terms of our spending um with software and cap it so that if it does if there is a big spike like that it doesn't end up costing us it was a very expensive mistake
0: very it's, expensive do you when um when you think of your current business with fathom and growing it, it is if a business like that is that a i want to grow it and sell it i want to exit and then you know sail you know set off into the sunset kind of scenario or do you do you do you still fight the the as the you know as a founder in here you know growing this thing to to this, to this high level, or is I got to imagine those thoughts still run through your head at some point, just as a, as a creator, as someone who who built a baby and wants to see it do really well. Um, yeah, yeah, but for this business specifically, what do you, what do you want to do with it?
1: Um, well, I kind of like running it. I, I like the dude that I'm partnered with. We have, we have a good time. Like, it's just, it's just fun um, to work with somebody who, who's also um, has, a, has a, a dark sense of humor. <laughs> um, but for all my other, all the other companies I've started um, that are in that realm, I've ended up selling because I am better at starting things and running things. Um, so I totally see that. Um, I don't really have any plans to do that with Fathom, but I mean, I say that, but I would be okay. Like if we got to a point where we could sell for an amount, that would mean I don't have to think about money again. Then that's appealing. Like, honestly, that's appealing. Um, but if it doesn't get to that point and it's still just doing well, like it is now, then I'm like, this is a cool job. Like I don't dislike the job that I have. So if, It would just mean that I could spend, if I could sell and I could just spend all day on a bike, like that's, that sounds, that sounds pretty good to me, but yeah, that's not the plan. And we plan on running things for a long time. Like I've, I've been in business for myself for 20 years. Like I kind of have a a long-term view and I want to um, have an exist plan over an exit plan kind of thing. But obviously if somebody came in and made a stupid sure. um, propo- like made a financially irresponsible on their part, um, offer, then it's entertaining.
0: <laughs> One last thing before I let you go, I want, I would love for you, any of my, the gym owner community that is listening to this and they're on the, they're on the fence with it. And I, I'm of the belief that we don't need to get bigger facilities. We don't need to have, have 400 more clients and then hire 10 trainers, and but that is again the traditional mindset of of growth. You know, we love seeing the basket go in the hoop, and then walk a little bit further away from the basket and get that next shot kind of thing. But you could still win a game and by just hitting layups, just layups, and you could still win a basketball game. What advice or what kind of uh would you say to them to maybe get them to reconsider the current growth mindset? Because I, I have guys that are like, "No, I'm still. I want to open three more locations." I'm like. Brother, short of the commercial real estate industry having a complete flip, which it's not. Commercial real estate is still just as expensive. It's not like 2008 again. When in the world do you think you wanted to open up more brick-and-mortar locations looking how something like this literally just suffocated a 30% of the industry? What would, it, what would you say to these guys?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would ask yourself three things. Um how much is enough for you? Because it's different for everybody. So how much is enough? Um, How will you know when you get there and what will change if you do, right? And if there isn't, if the third one, if the answer is just, oh, I'll go for more, I'll go for more. That's not really an answer, right? Like, it's like, are you going to be happier? Is your life going to be markedly better with more? And certainly, like we talked about in the beginning, fuck yeah, it's going to be better if you go from zero to something. You're profitable. That's amazing, right? Right. Um, but there comes a point where it's like, okay, well, maybe that's, maybe that means like I spend an hour less with my kids and that doesn't sound better. Or maybe it's like, I have 10% more stress in my life. If I have to deal with 20 locations versus one, that doesn't sound better to me. Like you have to think about it, uh, from a whole like kind of picture, like, how do you want to spend your day? How do you want to spend your life? How, like what makes you happy? And are you going to get more of it or less of it if you're just focused on hyper growth in, in the work?
0: Awesome. Paul, listen, I cannot tell you how, uh, how grateful I am that you took the time to do the interview. And, um, yeah, I hate, you know, I hate the idea of you not publishing any more books and not doing anything, but, uh, you know, I wish you nothing but the best with fathom and everything that's going on in your world. And, and thank you so much, man, your book. I've, I've got three books now that I claim in my business, uh, career that have been absolutely life-changing and yours is, uh, is the most recent one. And I, I thank you so much for that.
1: Yeah, no worries. Thanks, man.
0: Awesome. Thank you.